think about women's herbal knowledge, there was a time where having that knowledge would cost you your life. You would literally be burned for it. And so if you were given the option of imparting that to your daughters and knowing that you were you know, possibly giving them the kiss of death with that knowledge, so a lot of that lineage got disrupted. Mm. And so I feel like reclaiming it in this modern context and understanding, you know, using what we understand about female physiology with plant medicine and almost healing those missing links is this wonderful form of activism. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beer Pie people who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context. Not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. I have a somewhat local-ish guest. In Australia, if someone lives like in the same state as you, they're sort of local. Um, <laughs> but my guest here only lives about three hours away, so to me that's fairly local. I've got Clara Bitcoin Bailey from Mediatrix Wellness. I hope I'm saying that right. She can correct me. Okay, perfect. Um, who's a women's health naturopath living in Sydney in the Marrickville area who specialises and loves helping women get to the root cause of their menstrual cycle issues and create menstrual cycle health. Clara has a bachelor's degree in naturopathy and postgraduate training in natural fertility education and women's herbal medicine. Wonderful combo. Super excited. We just had a little preliminary chat and, yeah, I'm really excited to um, let this conversation unfold. Thanks so much for being here, Clara. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a joy to be here. It's raining here too. We've both got the rain, so hopefully it doesn't get too heavy on my tin roof, the noise. Um, so before we jump into, excuse me, before we jump into everything, I'd love for you to share with people that maybe haven't been following you or heard a little bit of your story of how you came to be a naturopath and become interested in natural medicine as well. Sure. So, I mean, it's been a pretty long road for me. I um, I was lucky enough to go to a great naturopath when I was nine years old and at the time, I had um, I had glandular fever, and I'd been stuck in it for about a month, and uh, just feeling miserable. And the our family GP, um, like all they could do is just say Panadol and rest and jelly beans when I left. <laughs> and um, and one of my friends at school, her mum was you know a bit more into the natural medicine world, and suggested to my mum I see a naturopath, and I. So mum took me and it was just this um, full body experience of like, you know, everything about the interaction, the questions she asked, the completely different way I felt 
like as a kid it was like this full bodied experience of that she could actually see into me and she actually cared that I was feeling sick and it just felt like this whole other reality had been shown to me and um and you know she made herbs and told my mom that I couldn't have ice cream and jelly anymore and have you know more warming soups and I was like a, a bit appalled at those suggestions but you know everything got me back at school like in less than a week and so that combined with just that palpably different experience of care and love in a healthcare setting just had me wanting to be that when I grew up and so then I just got really fascinated by it and always borrowing books on herbs and like medieval times and witches and I don't know all that sort of stuff you get into as a young teen um and then, yeah, I went and studied at university and the women's health, health piece really came in in that I was living in a share house and we had, um, there was six of us and it was a combination of naturopaths and midwives and an osteopath. And, you know, this like blossoming of, you know, naturopaths are always thinking about, you know, preventative health care and holistic health and midwives are looking at women's rights and, birth and prenatal care and how that's so lacking in you know the current status quo of healthcare and just together it just created this delicious combination of uh, I think we just imprinted on one another and it sort of set me on the path to going down the women's health path so it sort of came from that seeing a need and uh yeah, and just that there's this gap in healthcare for women. And I really just at the beginning of my career wanted to set about the path of trying to close that as much as I could. Fantastic. I love that. I love that so many people's, um, like, part of what's formed them, like for you it started really early on as a child, but then the share houses. Like I know my share houses really impacted me living with so many different people, our environmental activists and Chinese medicine doctors and I love the yeah. people's story. Oh, and it's that beautiful time of like your mind is like at university. It's teaching you how to think and open your mind up to whole other worlds. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, cross pollination. Yeah, so. cross pollinating. <laughs> Often before <laughs> children too, so you've got so much more time for those late night conversations and living in close yes. quarters. Like it's really communal. That's it is. fantastic. Yeah. You know, sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> um, yes, the like living on Dahl and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't, there's something romantic about it, but yes, no, it's, it's a special time in life. Yeah, it is. So I'd love to jump into uh, starting with the fertility awareness method um, mm. work that you do and training you've done. So we'll probably, for everyone listening, we'll probably just call it FAM to make it easy from here on in, which is Fertility Awareness Method. Um, and I have done one other podcast for anyone who's kind of just tuning into the Pollination Mamas podcast, episode five, I think, with Lisa Hendricks and Jack, who uh, focuses just on fertility awareness method from her own angle. And she's written a book called The Fifth Vital Sign. Um, but I'm really interested today to talk to Clara from naturopathy angle and there's so many different layers and levels to fertility awareness so if you could just um give the listeners maybe a little brief 101 on what fam is and why you feel it's a really important tool to connect to our bodies sure so 
Well, the FAM is essentially the ability to know from day to day whether you can get pregnant or whether you can't get pregnant in its most distilled form. And the way you can do that is by knowing how to uh, observe, record and interpret your, um, there's three fertile signs, but most methods, the symptothermal method just uses two, your cervical mucus, number one, and then number two is taking your basal body temperature. And when you learn how to understand how those two fertile signs work for you, you can know with exquisite accuracy, um, yeah, when you can possibly conceive. And so the, you know, it's a really simple body literacy skill, you know, it's like, it's sort of same as tuning into when you're hungry or when you're thirsty or when you're feeling sleepy and you need to sleep. Um, it's just this other way of understanding what's going on in your body and the uh, implications of that for women is profound. It, you know, it completely changes the contraception, you know, conversation for them when they come into their, you know, um, childbearing years. It gives them a huge, like a lot more agency. And it also really, I talk a lot about this domino effect that can happen when we don't have this knowledge from a young age and you can sort of get trapped in this labyrinth of, you know, going on birth control and then, you know, when you're coming off it and wanting to conceive things, not settling back into place, you know, fast enough, and I'm using air quotations there, um, and then, you know, with the algorithm of medical care at the moment, if you've, you know, haven't conceived within a year of unprotected intercourse, you're deemed infertile and you get ushered into, you know, assisted reproductive technologies and, you know, services. And so it's really easy if you don't have that knowledge to get shunted through lots of high-level interventions. And, um, and a lot of that could be prevented, I feel, if women were just taught how to read these really simple signs in their body. So it's a really, um, I, I really believe it's as important as maths to learn at school because it's, yeah, huge. Um, it's a tool of enormous self-agency. Mm, absolutely. Especially in the age of the pill and now people realising that and learning that there are a lot of serious side effects to the pill and wanting mm. Some other options and I agree it needs to be taught in high schools for sure so that women yeah. young women can just learn about their bodies early on totally and look the pill and those you know I'm abs I like to sort of think of myself as a moderate mm. a centrist around this it's not as if those things are innately bad mm. um, it's just that if you are not coming at that personal decision from like with that understanding of how those things are interacting with your body and that there's a really there's these other really viable other ways that when you're not given that option that just means you're not being able to give informed consent yeah informed choice i agree it's not don't want to make the pill out to be the devil because there's a place for it for some people Absolutely. Um, i believe as well but with informed choice people might make different decisions on how long and other alternatives before choosing the pill, I guess it wouldn't be as widely spread and maybe um, those long-term effects might be minimised a little bit too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's also important for people to understand 
their cycles, even if they don't want to have children, right, because mm. of the indicators of health. So once you know that you're ovulating, then that's a sign of um, health to a certain degree. And then the balance of hormones that plays throughout the menstrual cycle between estrogen and progesterone and there's so many others going on um, can have a huge impact on health, right? So if someone's having other symptoms, then possibly it could link back to um, an imbalance in what's happening in the menstrual cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got it like that layer of health and then you also just have a layer of uh, understanding, you know, you're changing energy and moods and how your brain is thinking. It's, you know, ovulation and menstruation, are these two poles that we're constantly ebbing and flowing between and the different shades between those, uh, like we're, you know, a couple of different people within one cycle and when we can begin to like understand those patterns we can leverage those and really know how to work with those rather than feeling uh beholden to it or that we're constantly having to push up a hill we can yeah work with the energy a lot and so then once you've got that then when there's things amiss in there that's when it becomes a really great indicator of okay well there's something not quite right in my system at the moment where you can pick up on health issues a lot more early. Yeah, absolutely, early on. That's right, before they become too chronic, you can pick them up early. Yeah, and you're mm. just learning to honour the feminine cycles a bit more instead of feeling I have to push through, <laughs> take yeah. things and push through if periods are hard and, and just keep trudging along, which for some people that's not an option, but by listening to those different um aspects of our cycle and slowing down when possible when we need to and then understanding our higher energy um instead of expecting that a high energy productive external outgoing extroverted energy to be there all the time sort of honoring it and appreciating it as well like appreciating mm. slowing down which isn't really honored in our culture i guess it's not something that's really promoted or honored but something that's being talked about a lot more to start understanding and honouring. No, there's a really great, rich conversation that's I'm hearing more and more and more, which is... Which is exciting. And weaves in with um, tracking your cycle and fertility awareness too because then, yeah, yeah. it gives a language. Yeah, to I've been trying to, like, work out, I'm not quite there yet, of a term that kind of encompasses it because you've got yeah. fertility, which is, you know, strictly for the goal of managing your fertility mm. whether it's the birth control or conceiving mm. um, or as you said like a really great way of knowing your health like you know obviously it's a great piece of knowledge to have and then you've got like menstrual cycle awareness which is all these psycho-spiritual elements mm. that um like the work of you know alexandra pope and sejani hugo Woodlitzer, they've really done so much fabulous work in that space so it's sort of like this menstrual cycle fertility consciousness and there's different oh. petals of yeah. it. Um, and you can kind of begin to collect different petals as you start awakening more to seeing this world more cyclically. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, it does need an overarching name. I'm sure there's one out there. <laughs> we might come up with it in this conversation. One being born soon. Yeah. <laughs> so in that and talking about um, how there is often a bit of a pressure to just 
push on through difficult periods and not slow down and not honour that. Um, can we talk a little bit about the impact of stress on our cycles and why that's important? Because I, as I talk to women and in myself as well, as I observe myself, I really notice the impact of stress on my cycle and on other people. Um, and we live in such a busy, pressured life <laughs> a lot of the time. So mm. stress can be like a really um, acute sort of one-off stressful incident and illness is something that can happen. But um, just those little stresses and a stressful lifestyle how that can accumulate to impact on the cycle yeah well i mean i mean first of all the menstrual cycle is a i talk about a lot as being a stress sensitive system it's like this it's a great barometer for measuring how much your body is registering stress and how well we're able to recover from stress um i mean from a purely hormonal based level so the Major hormones in the body, I mean, like a really quick, like hormone 101, is that we have these high centers in the brain called the hypothalamus and the pituitary, and they are kind of like the CEO, or um, actually, I'll use the metaphor of an orchestra, and it's that they're the conductors, they know the composition of music, and they're the ones that are telling different areas of the hormonal system what needs, you know, whether they need to be louder or softer, whether they need to be switched on or downregulated. And it's an extraordinarily complex system, but for the sake of this example, knowing that the we've got adrenal glands, which are two little glands that sit atop our kidneys, and they produce all our stress hormones, um, adrenaline and cortisol. And then we've got our ovaries, which are producing uh, estrogen and progesterone and a few other things. So when you are activating one arm of the hormonal system, and in this example, it's the adrenals with stress, they then have a flow and effect to all the other glands and the ovaries being really sensitive in the presence of stress because it's you know a completely survival protective mechanism. When we're stressed, the body does not feel safe to reproduce and it's in a way it's a way it, it's protecting the human species it's saying we can't bring a new life because there's the environment is dangerous and that is yeah it, it won't support that life but we've got this evolutionary mismatch where in modern life that system is being chronically activated um and so <clears throat> we can see a lot of i mean i see a lot of uh, fertility and menstrual cycle issues being misdiagnosed, uh, most famously polycystic ovarian syndrome, when actually it's just a stress pattern cycle. Like a long, irregular cycles uh, very often can be attributed to the body making multiple attempts of ovulation but just not quite being able to get there because it's been given the signal, no, not, not right now. I mean, there's like, you've got the fight or flight and there's rest and digest, but there's also another one which is like feed and breathe. So it's just about if the body is not feeling like a safe, relaxed container, the menstrual cycle is always going to be one of the first, um, uh, what's the word? It's going to be one of the first things affected. Mm, yeah. yeah. Interesting about the PCOS and those long cycles. It's really 
oh, I'm going to have to sit on that a bit more. And I love the feed and breathe. Yeah. Yeah. To have the really positive, like, that's what we're aiming for, <laughs> just like feed and breathe and <laughs> relax state. Yeah, that's it. And and just to realise that, you know, uh, you know, I, and I have this when I'm working with women who are having any kind of fertility issues and, I mean, this is the beautiful linking back to FAM, is that you can tell very clearly from a chart or from a series of charts whether it is like stress is the thing that's uh, pushing that style of imbalance or if there are other things that warrant deeper investigation. And that can be wonderfully stress relieving for women when they see that because if they don't know, oh, okay, it's just it's just stress or me worrying or these things like baseline anxiety rather than some big horrible thing that you know doctors are not being able to pick up on and then of course anxiety getting worsened for that so that's where charting can give you an enormous amount of um, accurate information that can be wonderful for stress levels absolutely yeah and interestingly like PCOS often does get diagnosed quite early on in a woman's life Mm. Um, compared to say something like endometriosis, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, and and that sort of makes me think about how much stress there is for young women and young men. But talking about young women's bodies, um, or the female womb carrying body, is that there's so much stress in high school, and so that's a time when your body is starting to menstruate and trying to regulate and um, adapt to the that new stage of life and so it makes sense that you would be seeing those stress patterns at that time and then people would get to their late teens early 20s and if there's been chronic stress throughout that high school period then often a PCOS diagnosis may happen I guess. Totally and I mean I think well at least in the circles that I'm attuned to that the diagnostics are getting a lot better with determining whether it actually is PCOS. But what we're experiencing is a hangover of women that are now in their late, late 20s, 30s, and they were teenagers in that era when it was just an ultrasound and they saw if they saw multiple follicles on the ovaries, that was a polycystic ovarian syndrome diagnosis and they'd be put on the pill for that. But the thing is, is that if you are having a stress cycle and there's multiple follicles uh, maturing but not reaching ovulation, that's going to give a similar appearance on an ultrasound. And yeah. so then, you know, the option that is laid out to them is medication and, yeah. Okay, so the diagnostics are getting much better for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some, like, great leading endocrinologists that have done a lot of great work and um, trying to get primary... Uh, healthcare providers to realize you know you've got to check the androgens you've got to check mm -hmm. the insulin like there's a lot of other markers yeah. Yeah. and yeah and that's something I really love to impart with I mean any listener who's been given a PCOS diagnosis unless you've had that blood work done um, I would absolutely recommend getting a second opinion mm, yeah really good advice yeah it's so important to get those hormonal markers checked yeah so then um, leading on to endometriosis, I thought I'd talk about this specifically, and I'm glad we mentioned PCOS too, um, because it's just so prevalent, so many, and we spoke about this before, um, and I know you've talked about it in social media, and <clears throat> it gets talked about quite a bit, like I follow Lara Bryden as well, and 
a lot of women come to me when I'm at markets selling vaginal steam herbs with an endometriosis diagnosis. Um, and I just feel so sad that it's so prevalent. Hold on. Excuse my um, winter cough and little niggle in the back of my throat. And I guess there's a few layers to it and it's more complex than what we'll be able to completely cover, of course, in this podcast, but hopefully we can touch on some important aspects. Is I guess I want to hear different people's ideas on why they think it's so prevalent in our society. And then for you, coming from the role of a naturopath and um, women's herbalist, the role of naturopathy and herbal medicine in addressing endometriosis. Well, in terms of prevalence, I mean, I haven't got any solid answers for that. I mean, a term that uh, a lot of us naturopaths refer to, and it's actually coming from the mainstream science community, which is really neat, is this concept of the exposome. Have you ever heard that term before? No, I don't think so. So it's like the um, sum total of different things we're exposed to both in our external environment and our internal environment. Mm. And in the night, like sort of 80s, 90s, there was, you know, a huge focus on genetics and the genome project and uh, so like exposome genome, sort of that sort of two puzzle pieces linking together. Okay. And what this research around what we're exposed to is that actually it's more you know, the studies are saying between 60 and 80% of these chronic diseases are actually attributed to that rather than genetics. There's always going to be a genetic predisposition, but it's always the triggers. And I think what's happening in our modern times is uh, like stress that we spoke about before. I think it's all these things that we've been doing that are catching up with us, you know, in the way that we've approached healthcare and the environment and all these other big things and it's that confluence of factors. Um, and so with endo, what, I mean, it's far more than just painful periods and the, we now understand it that it's an inflammatory condition that's sensitive to hormonal fluctuations. And so with, so you've got a couple of pieces there. There's inflammation, there's hormone balance, and hormone balance can be impacted by stress, but also our ability to process and our detoxification pathways, which by detoxification, I simply mean the enzyme systems in the liver that take things that are harmful and process them so that they're harmless and then can be excreted by the body. And so we're being exposed to so many more things in our, uh, you know, like pesticides and uh, just all the things that we all now have that yeah. <laughs> we're not exposed to. And, you know, I've got, a, I've got tremendous uh, respect and faith in the human body that we can deal with a lot, but it's just when those systems get overburdened and that when a system is chronically overburdened and it's not quite being able to handle everything it's been exposed to, that's when dis-ease happens. And I see in a lot of my endo clients when we can support those body systems that have been put under strain for a long period of time, that's when we can actually see those deeper shifts in the condition. Okay. So, yeah, that's very much my clinical observations rather than anything that's confirmed in the literature. Mm. Um, I mean, and, and again, it's like 
and also multifactorial because there's a whole there's a lot of literature confirming that there can be quite a link with any sort of past trauma especially sexual trauma in more advanced cases of endo so then there's that um for want of a better word but that like that psychological piece in there too and i mean energetically our wombs are we can hold a lot there mm-hmm. yeah absolutely we can and yeah. like linking that psycho-emotional aspect back to how that impacts the physical is that as you hold tension in it somewhere and then there's less blood flow um if there's been any scarring and there's less blood flow then the healing and there's so many aspects to that as well Mm. So you can quite easily link how the trauma and the psychological, emotional stress can get held in a certain area of the body. People often talk about, you know, someone dying of a broken heart and someone spent 60 years and then their partner passes away and literally the heart responds to that heartbreak. So it's the same with other organ areas of our body as well. Yeah, a lot of stories in our wombs. Yeah, absolutely. And then generally, across the generations too, um, epigenetics and passing on previous trauma and Mm. carrying that through is huge. It's real. (laughs) It's It's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That's part of all the things. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like endometriosis is almost a linchpin for so many things because... I mean, then you also have, and we were speaking about this before um, we started recording, was that, I mean, one in 10 women have endometriosis. It takes an average of, I believe, seven years is the current statistic to get a diagnosis. And often you have to go through five different practitioners, medical doctors, sorry, um, to get a proper diagnosis. And that's not necessarily because the medical system is lacking in diagnostic skills. That's their absolute not a strength. I believe that there, not even that, I've got a lot of colleagues that observe this as well, is there is a medical bias against, with, with women and, uh, you know, anything to do with menstrual cycles is still taboo and pain is, you know, notoriously something that a lot of people can say, you know, it's it's subjective so it can be ignored. Mm. And what I, you know, this really common story that I hear from clients is just that not feeling believed or heard by their doctors and that and you know the more doctors that they go to the more they have to push and push and push and the more likely that they push the more doctors push back on thinking that it's a you know a psychiatric issue rather than you know a physical issue so that is a huge problem and linking to that part of your question of what's the place of you know holistic practitioners is just that you know we can fill in those gaps we can sit with these you know Uh, humans with uteruses that and spend an hour to an hour and a half with them and hear their story and actually be able to join those pieces together in a way that 10-minute GP consultations simply just can't do. And a lot of my work isn't like with endometriosis or period pain is, yes, we need to get a good treatment protocol for you, but let's 
I almost see myself as a patient advocate is here is the language you need to speak with your doctor. Here are the questions. And if they, you know, if you lay out, lay out all that evidence to them and they ignore you, that is a breach of duty of care as, you know, a, a doctor. Um, so you can then change, you can give them a structure and, and in, in that empowerment to know how to advocate for yourself. And sometimes it just takes somebody who understands the system and understand how symptoms can be linked to be able to do that. So I think holistic practitioners have got an enormous amount to offer women um, in the space. Mm, you make really important points. It's, it is, um, yeah, there's so many layers there to almost the culturally there's a norm that periods are just normally painful. Yeah, so that's, that's something you should just put up with it. <laughs> Sorry, you're a woman and your periods have been painful. But, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that role of a naturopath being an advocate and I think that's really important. I love that you've brought that up because you do, you can kind of bridge the two and then it's linking back to your original sort of like imprint of naturopathy is being a caring care provider <laughs> actually That's it. yeah being able to sit and and acknowledge just acknowledgement is huge when someone's been suffering through anything to have that understood heard and acknowledged and to be able to give a benchmark like i think a lot of women yeah. think that you know, taking, needing to take like a whole packet of ibuprofen in a period is just normal. Mm. Yeah. And to be told, no, that's a sign that something is amiss, we need to look into that can be, that can open the door to then exploring that. Yeah. And then unpacking all the things. <laughs> unpacking all the things. All the <laughs> Depending on that person. And I guess there's going to be some of the things that are going to be sort of across the bench um, to varying degrees like environmental toxins. And, and then for different people, there's going to be different layers of emotional and stress. And, yeah, and, and that's stuff. why, you know, one size does not fit all. Every, um, every person's, you know, I talk a lot about how um, health challenges are an invitation to grow. Mm. <laughs> you know, constantly, and that's why uh, menstruation is such a wonderful marker of health because it would just so clearly give you this insight into how your health is going and if things are amiss, to see that as you've been issued an invitation to explore some uncharted territory, not just with your health but other aspects of your being. Mm. And that's why it's an enormous privilege and my favourite part of this work is to see how that unfolds for each person when they sort of answer the call and it's different for every single person how that unravels. Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it might not be the invite you want to receive, but... Usually <laughs> no, never convenient, usually never comes at the right time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, it can yeah, lead to some great places. Yeah. That's one of health. And often people's pathway to health and greater understanding of themselves comes through challenges, and that's one mm -hmm. of them. And I can't help but think about with the prevalence of one in ten is massive. And how that, so we talk about the menstrual cycle as a barometer and then it's almost like endometriosis and, and other reproductive health issues. But looking at that is a barometer for how our current culture, lifestyle and environmental 
impacts toxins are affecting the human race. So women are essentially that kind of barometer there. In this sense, um, there are other aspects for the male body and for people in general, sperm quality going down dramatically, which doesn't get talked about enough. But um, it's almost like endometriosis is one of those signs of hey, look, <laughs> we've got all the we've got climate change happening, we've got species extinction, but on a human level, we've got the human body crying out to say, this is not working, we need massive change. Yeah. We need to really look at how we're living, what we're eating, how we're treating the earth, what food we're putting in our body and how we're growing it. Exactly. And it's like feminine ecology sort of aspect too. Yeah, no, it could be, uh, seeing it through that lens is a really interesting way to see it. And, I mean, you know, for people who then overcome endometriosis, like they work out the way that allows them to have, like, pain-free periods and, you know, restores that system. Uh, if you go into that whole, uh, that whole process consciously, you know, it's producing these incredible agents of people who've had their eyes opened. And I so almost see that as a marker of health of what people then get, like, inspired to do once they've come onto that new ground. It's really exciting, you know, making big moves and changing their direction of their career and their focus. And it's Yeah, absolutely. And that trickles out into the world. Global issues, yeah. It's really, that to me is like, that is a that's the definition of healing. Like you can then go out into the world as that healed version that that issue gave you. Mm. So. Yeah, that's really powerful. <clears throat> and so you obviously, like it's your clinical experience and you are seeing some great results with people coming in with endometriosis mm. and then really embracing lots of changes and working with you with lifestyle and herbs and supplements and I know you can't tell us too much about it but can you tell us a little bit about some of like the broad success that you're seeing so I well because it's a multifactorial issue it takes a multifactorial approach so when you can correctly be part of my um clinical process is that we don't start treatment until we've got that really clear idea of what's going on for that person mm. and then it's um you know and i'll always draw this mind map so they can see exactly what's feeding into it and then it almost becomes this i say it's like this becomes the game we need to address all of like as many of these aspects that are driving it and that's what we call root causes mm. so addressing it from a root cause level is um one part of it another part of it is then uh, like I said before, then working with a medical professional and really establishing the, you know, using them to using their expertise to help give them, you know, turn stones we need to have turned. And that can give, you know, the more specificity we have is the greater the specificity of the treatment can be. Mm. And I'm a huge fan of medical science. I think it's phenomenal. I'm just not a huge fan of user experience of medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's well put. Yeah. It is, yeah, not, there's like a lot to be, um, you know, there's a lot of change that needs to happen there. Yeah. And, um, and then herbs, like herbs are incredible for women's health issues. They, you know, usually with something like endometriosis, the three 
options people are usually given is birth control, pain relief, and at some point you'll probably need surgery. Um, or in some cases, they're just told to have a baby and that will fix the problem, even like yeah. teenagers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> questionable that. advice. But the thing I love about herbs is that they're dynamic and they work to help restore a system that no pharmaceutical can do. Um, most pharmaceuticals are just isolated components of plants. Um, but it's like the full spectrum of all those beautiful plant constituents that elicit a, a, can help elicit a healing response in the body. And then the way I practice herbal medicine is from a very, um, it's what we call vitalist approach. So it's looking, you could have literally four different clients who have been given a diagnosis with endometriosis, but one tends, you know, has got more of a cold, dry constitution. So we're going to need to use you know, warming and uh, soothing herbs for her. And somebody's got like a really hot, um, they easily sweat and go red. And, you know, the type of pain they experience is like very sharp. And so they would, you know, that would be a completely different type of herbal treatment. Oh. So then being able to see those, that uh, beautiful individuality within a diagnosis is a huge strength of herbal medicine. Mm, so when you can... Yeah, so when you can get the um, changing the lifestyle, so you know, any of those factors that are at play for them, you know, I mean, like in some cases I've had like people who have been photographers that have worked in dark rooms with a lot of chemicals and it's just been about, you know, working out how they can reduce their exposure as much as possible or look into alternative chemicals or hairdressers mm. and that's like a huge piece of their puzzle. And then if you can get the diet and some good self-care practices and then a really beautifully formulated herbal protocol, it's that that I see is what gives us good results. Mm, just, yeah, just because you could have the most perfectly designed protocol, but if those other deeper factors are not happening, yeah. you're just not going to get the shifts. Yeah, you can get the results, absolutely. Yeah. Um, also... I've read somewhere, it might have been with Lara Bryden, about the possible impacts of the of bacteria on endometriosis. So mm. then we're looking at that gut microbiome, which is so many things. Like that's such an important aspect to address, I guess, with any health issue. But um, yeah. looking at how that does link to reproductive issues as well. Totally. So you've got this the cavity in which the womb sits in called the peritoneal cavity. Um, and the peritoneal fluid, it's just like the fluid that the uterus is bathing in. And they have found that women with endometriosis, the profile of the, um, so microbiome is just for listeners, a term for all the um, different bugs, essentially, that we, like we're actually 90% microbes and 10% yeah. human cells. <laughs> I know, we're these like wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, and so we need that bacteria in a certain balance to have a symbiotic relationship, meaning that we host them and they give us health, they protect our health. But things like, and this is what I mean when I said before, we're getting the hangover of, um, you know, a lot of things, a lot of medical practices that we've had of antibiotics just being dished out like Tic Tacs for a long period of time. And so that has a huge impact on the microbiome. So, yeah. And glycogen and that, in our foods. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, another a great thinker in the space of endometriosis is Leigh Heckman. 
Okay. She's done her PhD in endometriosis, and I've learned a lot about the condition through her. And um, and she actually is uh, looking at more the inflammatory markers in that peritoneal fluid and being able to understand with great specificity what kind of imbalance of the bacteria are likely mm. driving that. Yeah, so then you can be very targeted with rebuilding. Yeah. Great, I love that. I'll look into her. Mm. Awesome, thank you. Wonderful info. Um, I'm sure we could unpack that forever. I would love to also talk to you a little bit more about herbalism because I love what you share on social media. And um, you talk about herbalism as a form of activism, and mm. also you talk a little bit about your connection to ancestors and possibly your Celtic lineage. Can you share a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. So, I mean, the uh, herbalist, being a herbalist in Australia is kind of a unique thing in that we use uh, we use the materia medica of our ancestors but not of the land that we're on. Mm. You know, I've, uh, when I've travelled to Northern Europe and um, so I've got a lot of ancestry from Denmark Ireland and Scotland and when I've been in those countries it just feels like in a weird way I feel more at home but I have a very deep connection to Australia too in a possibly even deeper way but just being able to walk through the streets and be able to see all my medicines everywhere mm. <laughs> so, and just I, I often say when I'm teaching herbal medicine is that herbal medicine is more about remembering like plant human connection is such an ancient one and that I mean it was the it was the kind of freaky experience when I was learning herbs was it just felt um it just felt like remembering it was like I can't really quite explain explain it so it just feels like it's somewhere somewhere if you're talking those genetics somewhere along that's come through um and it just helps me understand the context of the medicines that I use because um you can use a plant in so many different ways and understanding how my ancestors used it gives me a great deal more of context for that plant and how it's used. And then the activism piece is that, like, I, didn't, I can't see what's more radical than being able to, like, know how to identify plants, know what they're good for and be able to bypass, in some cases, like antibiotics because you know how to use those plants properly. And in a climate where there's still that, there's still, in a way, um, witch hunts going on all the time against, you know, alternative medicine. And some of that is totally warranted. Grant, um, and a lot of it is. <laughs> and some of it isn't. <laughs> there's a lot of very questionable stuff. But I think that a lot of it's been diminished. And mm. even, you know, even in the great herbal texts that, you know, Hippocrates and Dioscorides and um, Galen, which are for anybody who's sort of in the natural medicine world would know they're kind of like the forefathers of um, all medicine and then sort of naturopathy and um, modern medicine are kind of these bifurcating arms of that. But never, like always things like menstruation were seen as like a dirty thing, like a cleansing thing, even in those like wise old texts, oh. they would see women as unnatural. And I suspect, I mean, it's hard because not a lot of this is written, but uh, something one of my teachers, um, Sue Evans, 
taught us was that when you think about women's herbal knowledge, there was a time where having that knowledge would cost you your life. You would literally be burned for it. And so if you were given the option of imparting that to your daughters and knowing that you were you know, possibly giving them the kiss of death with that knowledge, so a lot of that lineage got disrupted. Mm. And so I feel like reclaiming it in this modern context and understanding, you know, using what we understand about female physiology with plant medicine and almost healing those missing links is this wonderful form of activism. And yeah, I can really relate to that. I feel similar when I'm in the garden growing food and herbs and picking herbs and in the kitchen. Um, it feels like I've done it forever, like longer than my lifetime. And I guess for some people they might feel like that is, um, if you believe in reincarnation, that is lifetimes. And perhaps there is an aspect to that depending on what you believe. But for me it feels like it's more than that. It feels like it's coming through my DNA. Like you say, it's mm -hmm. that my ancestors have done it forever, for a long time, even if there was a broken lineage. And by me doing it, I'm reawakening something that's been dormant for a while because of that broken lineage um, yeah. through the suppression. So, yeah, it does really feel like you're doing it for the ancestors. Like, <laughs> Well, it's sort of very different to how we, like, love fire. We gather around a fire. How yeah. We're scared of spiders and snakes, you know. Like, that's <laughs> encoded in our survival blueprint as human as a human species and Absolutely. Her, uh, in there as well yeah for survival because well like you said western medicine has um a lot of strengths and it's great i'd love to, i'm so happy to see more integration of um mm. modern scientific medicine and um herbal medicine but before we had what we have now <laughs> all we had was herbal medicine pretty much and other forms that it was our survival if someone got sick so it really we have relied on it for survival for so long and it still can play a role in that um hugely mm. and i love what you say of like when you're cooking or in your garden and the role of um you know a, a Susan Weed talks a lot about he's a herbalist in the u.s yeah. about how that style of me medicine mm. you know the you know, when you one of your kids has got, you know, is sick and you make them honey, thyme and garlic, like how a lot of that is invisible healthcare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so having knowledge of plants can be a form of invisible but uh, healthcare that nourishes vitality in such an extraordinary way. Yeah, absolutely, and brings back that, um, you know, that empowerment instead of always giving over your power when you get sick to your health provider and mm -hmm. I'm always a little bit cautious. I want to have this conversation but be cautious in it because I don't want people to make um, dangerous decisions and not see their health provider when they need to. So totally. where there's high infection and fevers and, and serious cuts and breathing issues and so many things, yes, definitely the health provider um, and your GP has such an important place. But at the same time, we don't always need to go straight to the doctor. We could do so much more at home by building up our health, but then also treating when things happen. So I've been making elderberry syrup a lot and selling it locally. And, and I call myself a home herbalist. And another that's another thing I like to be really distinct between is that um, 
someone like yourself who's a naturopathist has can offer tinctures and can offer higher level diagnostics and and a different treatment um but there's also a lot you can do at home you can grow a lot of herbs at home something like elderberry syrup is a culinary herb but yet so powerful at treating uh, viruses like colds and flus now i really would love to see more people taking that power back in their homes as well and integrating herbs into their food to a lot of the weeds that are herbal medicine like nettles and chickweed and dandelions totally it's because it's not a black or white thing it's not you have to be all alternative or all conventional it's no i mean a framework that i really love and this is what i work off is this concept of a healing hierarchy and it's like these sort of seven different steps of how you can approach health and each going into higher levels of intervention so like the first is like step zero is like to do nothing like rest you know like surrender the like menstruation is like the greatest teacher in that of just doing yes. nothing <laughs> you know and then like one like the first step is then to like gather information understand what's going on like is it a cough is it pneumonia is it like that will determine which steps you would take and then step two is like to just like nourish 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 you know like soups all these things you're talking about from the garden um and then if that's not working then you may need to bring in some more specificity like some herbs with some stronger sedating or stimulating actions uh, and then after that bringing in more like concentrated nutraceuticals maybe what's needed to shift the situation if those other levels haven't and then then you go over a line and that's when you enter the world of pharmaceutical medication and surgery and that's the domain of the conventional doctor but there's all these other levels that don't that they don't really understand or know how to give proper advice for i mean the doctors will often say you know bed rest and fluids but um so there's a lot that we can do before that and that's i see myself as the naturopath being able to uh you know help people with the nutraceuticals and the herbs and helping them like work out what their base levels are mm. and then when you understand it in that way it's just about working out what's the most appropriate step for what's going on for you right now yeah i love that yeah yeah mm. and diagnostics in there as well totally yeah mm. so you mentioned kind of jumping back a little bit um you mentioned that you have uh, personal ancestry celtic um and denmark as well have you done a dna test out of interest not me personally but both my parents have oh cool okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that helps and it's just yeah it's just all right up there yeah. yeah and then being interested in herbal medicine and yeah like you say when you're studying western herbal medicine a lot of it links to the herbs there mm. um i feel like there's two questions i've got so one is living in Australia, like I feel same, like being born here, I feel such a deep connection to the land when I've been overseas and then come back. Just something about the feel of the land and the smell and the eucalyptus and I just feel like oh, I always yeah. lose open skies. I always feel that when yes. I come back to Australia. It's like we've just got this big blue dome and the eucalyptus. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful and do you see like in yourself and in other practitioners integrating more of the australian herbs or is that something that's sort of still there's a lot to be learned about 
huge amount to be learned there. Um, it's a really good. It's a really good question. I mean, look, the only two herbs that we use really um, from the Australian Materia Medica is tea tree and eucalyptus. Mm. And there's a huge um, there's a huge amount of cultural safety and sensitivity around that. I mean, because the way Indigenous people understand plants is completely different to a Western understanding of plants. You know, they they see um, so much, you know, like with the song lines. And what we would see is like, for instance, like dandelion from a Western perspective, like Taraxacum officinalis, scientific name, you know, like it doesn't matter if it's growing in Victoria or Queensland, that's, that's dandelion that's used for like helping the liver and these sorts of, you know, certain health issues. But for an Indigenous person, they're on, comp they're two different lands. They're on different song lines. Those medicines do completely different things. So the way that they understand health and disease and therefore how they use their tools of healing is just so, such a hugely different paradigm to ours. Um, and I think rightfully so, they're very protective of their knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think uh, they know what would happen if, you know, industry got hold of that and yes. the industry is extraordinarily exploitative. Yeah. So I think they know they're starting that knowledge. Yeah, um, make a very valid point, that fine line between cultural appreciation and knowledge and then the appropriation and exploitation. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, it almost feels like, in some ways, it feels like a shame. I feel like we've got this wealth of like herbal knowledge here, but then it needs to be a very slow, um, gradual healing process for that knowledge to that. be um, preserved and held by its rightful owners, seeing the Indigenous people and shared in a way when they, where and when they feel is appropriate. Yeah, and the way they practice herbal medicine is also so, you know, a lot of it is like burning and smoking and, smoking. yeah, and herbs being prepared in completely different ways, whereas in the West, Western thing, you know, we, we extract things and we, yeah. you know, I, I mean, they use a lot of teas, but this concept of tinctures mm. to like, it's, yeah. Um, I, no, I've, I'm hopeful in my lifetime that some good sort of uh, appropriate use of that knowledge will, yeah, mm, in whatever way form it needs to. I, it's mm. happening in the culinary scene, I guess, with bush foods, which is really exciting. And one yeah. thing, you know, people using lemon, I use a lot of lemon myrtle and I grow um, a bunch of native herbs in my garden, but seeing it also in like mainstream cooking coming out more, which is kind of exciting because it often ends up being the herbs, I guess, that coming in through. Oh, the and I mean, I'm also, um, you can also tell a lot about a herbal, what a herb can do based on its taste. Like lemon myrtle is such a great example. It's got the, um, that lemony flavor, which means it's got this class called lemonines, which are all cooling mm. and usually anti. And when things are um, cooling and drying and it's good for like hot damp, Things are. So lemon myrtle, actually, I do use that. That's so good for fungal skin issues, especially yeah. up in the tropics. Yeah. When I lived up in Byron Bay, yeah, lemon myrtle was fabulous for all that. Yeah, so, I haven't done it for a while. I was making a tea and then washing my daughter, my youngest daughter has, um, I forget the name of it now, I've got a brain blank, but it's not, 
the common uh, fungal issue where you get the white, it's, uh, it's similar. So she gets these white patches on her face, which are just resolving as she gets older. But lemon myrtle tea is really amazing for treating it. So yes, it's yeah. Matter, the simple tea, wash her face. And um, yeah. So yeah. It's so easy to, yeah. So, sorry. So lemon myrtle is a great little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, what can you tell us about any books that you've read lately or that sort of relate to what we're talking about here with like your herbal lineage? You've shared a few. I've got to go back and look them up again and um, write them down, but I thought I'd ask mm. you as well. So, yeah, they talk about the history of herbal medicine or what you're reading now that's been really interesting. I'm always reading a couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one that's really great for the Celtic side of things is um, Healing Threads by Mary Blight. That's it, yeah. Yeah, B-L-E-I-T-H, I believe. Um, and she comes at it as a historian and looking at, um, yeah, just looking at the history of uh, medicine in general, but back then it was all herbal medicine and the different practices. Um, I'm loving Evolutionary Herbalism by Saja Popham at the oh, moment. Yeah. He just released that last month at the end of April. Yeah, I and follow I get his emails. His, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a one, he's a, like, yeah, he's great at being a um, trailblazer of just really uh, this vitalistic, energetic model of herbal medicine. And... And then what else have I been reading? And Michael Singer, Untethered Soul. That's a slightly different tangent, but okay. yeah, this beautiful, beautiful. It's kind of like Eckhart Tolle. Um, one of my clients actually got into it and has put. I love that when clients you set them off on these like scavenger hunts of new ways of thinking, and then they bring back good stuff for you to to learn. But yeah, okay. so, that sort of soulful component of healing. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a good blend. I know I've always got a few on the go. <laughs> I put myself yeah. on, on like a, what's it called, like a book hold. I'm not allowed to order any more books <laughs> for a while. Oh, I did, I've been doing The Artist's Way um, like three quarters of the way through by Julia Cameron and there was a week on week four you couldn't read any books or any media and it was just <laughs> devastatingly oh. difficult. <laughs> I would find that very hard. Yeah, I've got to um, hone in on my books and just <laughs> no more. Put some away. Yeah. Read the ones I've got. <laughs> Except for maybe that healing phrase. I might save that for a couple of months and get that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, winter, it's a good time to be diving into books. This time it is, years. yeah. And I'm doing some studies which um, have books attached, so I'm sort of focusing on those. Um, so talking of studies, can you tell us a little bit about your courses? You have a few online courses and where people can find you, what you're yeah. offering at the moment. So my, the next course I'm running, it's the second time I'm doing it, it's called Moon School and it is a six week course on basically everything we've spoken about. It's uh, herbal medicine, learning the fertility awareness method and then menstrual cycle awareness. So it's basically what I call this six week guide to becoming a cycle conscious person, um, giving you all those pieces. And so that's a really... Um, it's just a really lovely, wholesome, uh, and it always attracts a really beautiful group of people who are, you know, 
adopting this new cyclical way of being. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be running um, in September, October this year. So I'm going to be opening enrolments for that towards the end of August. And I also run another one called Deep Reset, which is a group, more of a group mentoring program. I've really designed that in the spirit of working with a practitioner one-on-one -on -one isn't always financially available to everybody. And so in that, I have really taken the, the sort of backbone of my clinical process and we go through in a group of 10 people um, and going through that and, you know, identifying your root causes and then working out a uh, sort of we do exploring foods that may be upsetting your system and not and working out your constitution and getting some really well indicated, you know, supplements and herbs and working together through that um, over three months. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. And did you write a book? I'm writing a book. Okay. Um, yeah. It's in the process. Oh, how exciting. It, well, I was writing a book and then it turned into two books and then one of them became Moon School. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And can I, you reveal I mean, anything about your books at this stage or is it all sort of like we, we have to wait for the grand reveal? Well, it's basically trying to distill. Um, I'm on draft two of both, both of them. Right. And, yeah, I mean, I basically everything that we've spoken about, fertility yeah. awareness method, learning your cycle, herbs, and, like, identifying root causes, how to speak to your doctor. Mm, because right. it's called, yeah, sovereign healing, so giving that real oh, sense of sovereignty in your health. I love that title. Mm. Oh, I'm so excited for you. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone. <laughs> That's really exciting. I'm um, uh, I'm looking for beta readers, so if you're interested. Oh, yes. yes. Once um, I've got. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you just said you need to. You're putting yourself on a book diet. <laughs> <laughs> but I am open. No, contact me. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely am open to doing that. I actually did that with the fifth vital sign for Lisa. Um, yes. Yeah. It's a great way of um, yeah, getting catching all those little details. It is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how I ended up. Um, having on the podcast and things like that. Yeah. Oh, is there anything else? I feel like we've touched on so many things. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Is there anything else you feel like you want to say to anyone that's maybe thinking about just uh, launching on this journey and maybe um, experiencing some women's health issues or being through the system with GPs? Mm. Um, Oh, do you offer online consults as well? Yes, yeah. So most of my practice actually is all delocalized, so okay. which is really cool that we live in this global climate. So yeah. yes, treat anybody from anywhere in the world. And I've got dispensaries um, in the US and the UK and Europe, so it's easy to get people's medicines to them through those means as well. But what the advice I would give is to always know that there's more options, more options than just what you've been given by conventional healthcare and not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because they're phenomenally important as part of your health team, but not to, you know, you should always get a second opinion and a holistic approach and a holistic view can often give you a lot more of a rich idea 
of what's going on in your body and therefore a richer idea of what your healing options are as well. Mm. And with um, learning to live a little bit more cyclically, I always say to start off like super, super simple because once you start tuning into it, it begins to, because it's our natural way of being, it often just takes on a life of its own. But just at menstruation, having the attention just to go a little bit slower even if that's just being aware that instead of having that self-talk of, you know, why am I tired? Why am I, why is everything feeling difficult just to understand you're at menstruation? This is how your body's trying to make you chill out and relax you and just to be okay with that. Um, but if you are magically able to like clear your schedule a bit and be able to take a little bit of like even half a day off, um, you know, and you can fill up your tanks, you'll, you'll experience the positive ramifications through the rest of your cycle. And then, yeah, and then just bringing some awareness around ovulation that, uh, you know, if you've got deadlines and things to have them around that time when you have the energy for it. So just starting with, like, oscillating between those two poles a bit more consciously can then give you a flavour of it and then there's many ways to um, get into the different uh, shades of grey between the two of them. Oh, I love that. Great advice. Mm. Thank you, Clara. And my pleasure. I can find you at? at? So my website is mediatrixwellness.com.au. So that's M-E-D-I-A-T-R-I-X, wellness. Um, and then on Instagram, which is where I mainly hang out in the social media realms, I'm now Clara Bailey. Um, so B A I L E Y. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I really hope there was something there for you. Please feel free to head on over to Instagram and Facebook pages, Pollination Mamas, and leave your thoughts, ideas, inspirations, feedback. I'd also really love for this to partly be a collaborative experience for all of you out there listening and to hear what topics ideas for guest speakers that you might have and also if you feel to i would really appreciate if you head on over to itunes anchor fm and the other platforms and left a review for the pollination mamas podcast this helps for the podcast to be seen more and to get the word out there these topics that we're all discussing to a larger audience i found podcasts so helpful to feel a bit more connected to ideas that I didn't realize were um, so common amongst us all. So yeah, also feel free to share with anyone out there that you feel may gain something from this. I also have a sign up on my website, pollinationmamas.com, where I send out approximately a monthly mail out with latest podcasts, sales on my small batch, largely homegrown herbal products, latest workshops and other thoughts and ideas that I might pop up on the blog occasionally. So thanks again for tuning in and hope to have you listening again soon.